Blog Talk Radio. platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore contemporary issues and solutions in leadership, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. I'm really excited. Today, I have a keynote speaker, guest, and author, uh, Mr. Mark Green. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Brian. It's great to be here. Great to have you. Uh, Mark Wright, and consults on relational practices, diversity, inclusion, and masculinity for organizations uh, all around the globe. And, and I've read a number of his pieces um, online, and um, I know that he speaks and coaches, and um, he's the author of a, a groundbreaking uh, book titled The Little Me Too Book for Men. Uh, he's a co-founder of an organization called Think Play Partners, and he's a, a senior editor for the Good Men Project. Uh, so I, I'm really excited um, to talk to you, Mark, about a lot of uh, the work that you've done, particularly around uh, what you've framed as remaking manhood. Um, a mm-hmm. lot of our listeners are principals and teachers and policymakers, but to, for the most part, educators that are responsible for the development of of children, and so a lot of whom are are young boys, and and so um, first, I'd, I'd just love to hear more about um, the organizations you're affiliated with, um, but particularly the work that you do around um, the the Good Men Project and uh, Think Play Partners. Uh, t- tell me a little bit about um, yourself and and the work that you're doing with those. Sure. Well, about 15 years ago, I got involved as a writer with the Good Men Project, and I was blogging about parenthood. Uh, my son had just been born, and I was uh, beginning to write and speak about being a, um, a stay-at-home dad. And that evolved into sort of exploring masculinity on a larger scale because it didn't take long for me to realize, A, that being a stay-at-home dad didn't fit very well back then. And mm. I started getting cultural messages about that role. And then I began to wonder what kind of messages my son was going to get. And then I began to think back on all the ones that, had, that I'd received in my life. So my work uh, is sort of twofold. One is to talk about what we call man box culture or our dominant culture of masculinity, which defines boys and men in America. And then to talk about, which, by the way, is a very de- disconnecting culture of masculinity. We, we, we sure. disconnect boys and men from relationships, right? And then we slot them into sort of a domination-based hierarchical system of masculinity. So then yeah. I also talk about a solution statement, which is relational practices and helping parents and helping educators uh, grow children's ability to center relationships and to understand the power of, uh, of learning how to grow their relational capacities. And, and, and relational just means the ability to center relationships. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. And so um, I, I know that 
this this project that you're writing for good men you know good men project what what are some of the the specific um programming that you do around good men well the idea i mean i remember years ago people were uh <laughs> they were appalled they were like you know how can you call yourself good men, you know, with all the things that are going on in the world? And we said, no, no, we don't call ourselves good men. We aspire to be good men. And mm-hmm. by that, uh, I think the work at the Good Men Project has always been to invite men to self-reflect about, uh, about what we believe manhood is, yes. about the culture that taught us all these things, and then to sort of learn to listen to the other voices in society, which are saying, hey, we'd like for all of you men to start thinking about these other issues because you've sort of been running the show for uh, a few hundred years. And, and, and we need to be involved in some of this decision-making too. There's too much abuse and violence against women. There's too much abuse and violence against people of color and immigrants. And so we're basically oriented against white and male supremacy. That's our, Mm -hmm. that's our positionality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, I when I some of the pieces that I read, I have to tell you, I, I was uh, really uh, impressed uh, in some of the places, I guess, in Huffington Post and in Salon. Um, but it, there, there are a couple of uh, places that made me reflect. Uh, I'm not sure where you're from, but I'm, I'm from a, a place, small place in Alabama um, where you know, a lot of what we, you know, there's this, this, for lack of better terms, macho vision of maleness, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, but oh, yeah. it, so there were a lot of times when I read some of your work where I could see in, in the, the ways in which I was socialized that there are messages that you get um, all along the way. And I think part of what I hear you talking about that what it means to be a man and this is what it means and what it doesn't mean. And, and one thing that you also talked about is the expression of emotion and, you know, whether it is to be sad or to be emotional about one thing or another. And I, I I recall once um, I was on, I was uh, doing some consulting and I'm walking through a school uh, in and in, in a, a school district in in the northeast, and the short story is uh, it was a high school, and we're walking through. I was walking with one of the principals uh, in the building, and and we're walking through the the corridor, and we see a young man, um, kind of small in stature, and a older um, male teacher out in the hallway, and as we approached we saw the young man was crying. And so for me, the signal was, wait a minute, it must be something really wrong. Um, Just because one, it's high school and he's crying, but two, he's a boy in high school in the hallway crying. Something is really wrong. And so as we approached uh, the uh, assistant principal said, what's happening? What's going on? And, and so the teacher turned without missing a beat and said, nothing, just being a sissy. And we both kind of, you know, kind of stepped back like, what? And, and so there's this idea that somehow he was less of a, of a male or, or becoming a man because he was upset. And what, 
turns out what he was upset about was that uh, another young man in the class kept kicking his seat and he couldn't concentrate because he kept kicking the back of his seat. And so he didn't address that. But what he addressed was that this small, he was small in stature, a kid um, just couldn't, was frustrated and he couldn't express Mm -hmm. it any other way. And, and so I think it was really unfortunate. So they had a conversation about what was wrong with him saying that, but it was, it, it is something that is pervasive throughout culture. And so I, I mean, I'm sure those are things that you've encountered as well. Well, you just laid out a textbook example of man box culture. Um, and I'm just going to run my little elevator speech here real quick and just try to give folks an understanding of uh, one of my books is called The Little Me Too Book for Men. And it basically lays out why men struggle so much to understand Me Too, why they, why they have such a difficult time, why they're so reactive about it, about women's stories of being assaulted. So there was a guy um, in uh, there was a guy in in the early 1980s named Paul Kibble, and he went into high schools and he said to boys, "What are the rules for being a man?" And they gave him this set of seven or eight rules. And whenever I go in front of a group, I just say, "Hey, what are the rules for being a man?" And people shout them out because most people know them. So they they'll shout out things like, um, "Don't show your emotions," "Be strong," "Make money." Uh, if they, if it's an adult group, they'll say, you know, have sex, get a lot of girls. Uh, and then there's a couple of more rules of the man box, which people aren't as willing to, to admit to, but, but eventually maybe the women will say, yeah, have control over women and girls. And then someone will say, well, don't be gay. And these are the rules that, that these boys told Paul Kibble about. Uh, but don't show your emotions is, is the first rule of man box culture. Right. And, uh, Mm -hmm. And so what's important to understand, when, when we talk about man box culture and we, when we talk about shaming boys for showing emotion, what we're doing in that moment is we're, we're, we're putting in place the first part of what's called the closed loop of, uh, of man box culture. And the mm-hmm. end result is devastating for women and girls. Mm-hmm. And this closed loop operates like this. The first thing we do is we shame, starting in infancy, we start telling boys that you don't show emotions, you don't cry in public, you're, you're tough, you're strong, you get up, you shake it off, you know, man up, be a man. Right. And if they continue to cry a little bit longer, we do exactly what that teacher in the hallway did. We say, what are you, a girl? What are you, sissy? Sometimes yeah. we might say, what are you, gay? And in right. that moment, what we're doing is we're gendering a very powerful human, human, universally human, human. capacity yes. for connection, which is mm-hmm. expressing emotionally. That's how we, mm-hmm. when we express emotionally with another human being, what we're doing is we're creating a relationship. We're creating an authentic relationship where we're sharing our true experience of the world. And it's not simply crying. It can be joy. It can be confusion, whatever. So Manbox culture tells boys don't do that. And if boys do it, we denigrate the feminine to shame them back into that man box. Mm, so in, mm-hmm. that, in the moment that we denigrate the feminine, what are you a sissy? What we're doing is we're telling boys, we're cutting boys off from the natural relational process to form authentic, individual, distinct, distinctive, healthy mm. relationships. Mm-hmm. And instead we're saying, pretend, pretend you're just these seven or eight rules of the man box. And also, by the way, women are less. 
Right. Because right. when we denigrate the feminine, and this denigration of the feminine doesn't happen monthly or weekly. It happens daily. It happens daily. hourly because sure. boys, are, boys are denigrating the feminine constantly. What are you, sissy? What are you, gay? What are you, this? What are you, that? And it's not surprising that boys come out of that process both hiding authentic aspects of themselves, having just yes. surface-level relationships, but also thinking of, you know, my value is simply that I'm male. I don't sure. need to be anything else but male, and I'm better than everybody else. I'm better mm-hmm. than women. I'm better mm-hmm. than girls. Mm-hmm. The second and, and, half of this mm-hmm. closed loop, if I can just throw this in, yes, please, the second please. half of this closed loop, Brian, is that we then slot them into a hierarchical domination-based system. We say, we don't care who you are authentically. Don't show us your fears. Don't show us your anxiety. Don't show us any of that stuff. Just show us your ability to dominate others. We're going to slot you into this hierarchy based on your physical size. And the boy you talked about was small, so he got put in lower. And the boy kicking his chair from behind was showing that he can dominate that kid. And you get slotted in based on status and race and size and, and, and class and all that stuff. And then you accept domination from those above you on the hierarchy and you dish it out to those below. And if you fail to dish it out to those below, you lose status, which increases the number of guys who can dish it out to you. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, we isolate boys and men, and then we teach them that the only way they can validate their masculinity is to prove their ability to dominate other boys and men, women, and anybody else that isn't them. And at the top of that hierarchy, of course, is white males. Yes, so we're going to dominate people of color. We're going to dominate immigrants. Yeah. We're going to do- and so this is – man box culture is, a, is not – what man box culture is, is it, it is not traditional masculinity. It is the enforcement of traditional masculinity and some other more brutal rules, and it is the birthplace. It's where white supremacy and male supremacy are born because we teach, we teach men that dominance is the only thing that matters, and if you're having a tough day, dominate somebody further down the, this supposed pecking order. Yes, absolutely. And I, I was actually going to get to that. But before, before I get to that, I, I just want to ask, from your perspective, how much of this, I don't really want to say is uniquely American culture. I, I think, you know, because I, I, I do want to hear what you think about where we fall in the American schema of things around this mm. issue. Um, and if it's American or is it Western European, what is it? But, but I want to tell you, I remember years ago uh, I was in South Africa and, and I noticed that little boys, let's say they were between eight and 11. Uh, I was at a, a, um, museum and their little boys got off of the bus uh, in the parking lot and they were they were buddies you know and and so they had no problem kind of walking arm in arm or putting their mm-hmm. hands around the other's necks and talking but being physically close in proximity and and they didn't get any stares or gestures or why are you, mm-hmm. you know, that close? Um, but that in, and I guess my point is that I've seen in so many other cultures that I've been fortunate enough to visit around the globe that from the time that they're young, that they don't have 
these boxes that they have to fit in because later on I saw among friends of mine that were adult men that had some of the same behaviors where they we might mm-hmm. be in the mall and and they would lock arms and walk and talk at the same time like this is my buddy I'm showing physical um uh, uh emotional attachment to someone I care about and that's without regard for sexuality or anything like that and so I I just wonder how much of this do you think is really what we've perpetuated in the United States. Well, understand that, that when we talk about man box culture, what we're talking about is a manifestation that falls under a larger umbrella, which is just dominant space culture. And mm. dominant space culture can manifest in different ways in different parts of the world, right? So if in the United States of America, dominant space culture is essentially white supremacy culture, you can have a culture, uh, maybe, let's say, I'm not going to name a country, but in Asia where the dominant culture is masculine coupled with uh, religious nationalism, right? Uh, But it's not white. So, and what's interesting is that there are places where physical contact between boys and men is wide open, absolutely happens all the time. Saudi Arabia. In Saudi Arabia, it is illegal to be gay. So how these things play out is, is it, it's different in different parts of the world. But I want to bring in here the, the work of Niobe Way because you're right in saying we have a particular American version of this man box culture. Versions of it play out everywhere. Certainly control over women and girls plays out everywhere. And the damage that's done to them here in the U.S. and, and globally is catastrophic because men are taught that they have the right to control women and girls and that women and girls are less. But in the U.S., Naomi Wade did a study with uh, boys in early adolescence. Uh, she's done this study for 20 years with massive populations of boys. And the question she asked them is, what does your best friend mean to you? And mm. these boys in early adolescence in the United States say, unashamedly, I love my best friend. They use the word love. And mm-hmm. then they say, without my best friend, I would go crazy. Mm-hmm. Then she goes back and interviews these same boys in late adolescence. And they say, yeah, my, my best friend, Mike, he lives around the corner, but I don't see him that much anymore. And, mm-hmm. and if they say something nice about that kid, oh, Mike, Mike's a great basketball player. They say, no, mm-hmm. homo. And then uh, – and another boy says about the same thing. He says, yeah, that, that friendship, it's sort of on a crossfade. It's fading out. Mm-hmm. And what she discovered in her research is that those boys by that point in their lives are not concerned with showing the world who they are authentically – they are concerned with showing the world what they are not. And the three things they're concerned about showing the world they are not is I am not a little kid, I'm not girly, mm-hmm. and I'm not gay. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, they disengage from those friendships because they've been taught by masculinity culture in America, by man box culture, that the need for intimate, close, caring male friendships isn't manly. It's not what adult men do. Mm-hmm. And in the moment that they make those choices in late adolescence, Boys' suicide numbers become four times that of girls. Again, wow. this is Niobe Way, and her book is Deep Secrets. And, and a woman named Judy Chu wrote a book called When Boys Become Boys. She was embedded in a pre-K class, four- and five-year-olds. And, mm-hmm. and, and her research showed her that those kids already, the boys in that class, were, were hiding their emotional acuity and beginning to adopt this sort of persona that our, that our uh, culture projects on them. So we have mm-hmm. to understand that if we're going to protect boys 
from things like being recruited into white nationalism and being recruited into violence, um, our best opportunity to do that is before the first part of this, uh, this loop, this closed loop, takes place, which is boys are convinced to give up connection. Mm-hmm. And, and, we, and when we, we, say, we say, oh, my gosh, we have a huge bullying problem in America. And yes. the other half of us say, oh, well, boys will be boys. No, they're bullying because they've been disconnected from any other form of validation, of personal validation of their masculinity. The only validation that they're allowed to do is dominance displays. Mm-hmm. So boys, are, dis- mm-hmm. uh, boys are, are blocked and shamed out of the trial and error work that normally a human being needs to do over the course of their childhood and early adulthood to grow nuanced expression of emotion, to learn how not to collapse into the emotions of others, to learn not to mirror emotions, you get mad, I get mad, to learn how to hold space for people who are different than them. All of these things that happen in the trial and error process of expression and communication with others, if we cut them off from that at age four, we say, don't show your emotions. We disengage them from that relational back and forth that allows them to grow nuanced relational capacities. Mm -hmm. And so this is the place where we get in. We intercede. We go. And we have a – Sally Han, my partner, wrote a book. She's a doctor, um, teaches therapy at Mercy College here in New York. Um, She's a counselor. She, we wrote a book called The Relational Book for Parenting, and it's full of mm-hmm. puzzles and games and stories and ideas, and it is designed to help parents. I mean, as parents, we are jammed all the time with teaching and telling. We have to get our kids up. We have to get them to school. We have to get their homework done. We have to do all this teaching and telling. But we can take time each day to shift from that focus, which is an important one, work on the relationship capacities for our kids Mm-hmm. Learn, to, learn to show them how to center relationships. And the first way to do that, you can start at age-appropriate ages, in age-appropriate ways early, four or five years old. You can say, yeah, Billy got mad at the park. And he's, yeah, Billy got mad. And say, well, well how did that make you feel? Well, it made me feel bad. You say, well, why do you think Billy does that? Do you think Billy has different kind of conversations at his house than we have at ours? Mm-hmm. And then you just fall silent and you wait. And children are so used to being taught and told and and you know, be in that cycle all the time, that if you ask a question about what their experience of the world is and then wait, they will push into that shared relational space with you. They'll begin yeah. to push their ideas, and they'll say, well, you know, Billy one time said his dad was mean. I say, oh, yeah? Well, what do you think that's like? You know, and this is the process by which we show children that what makes them distinctive is we're proud of, that we want to hear their thoughts on the world. We want to hear how they're putting together ideas. That context means that maybe something that happened to them wasn't all about them. It can be about a whole rich, complex world they're in. Right. And that's the nature of breaking that cycle, that cycle of disconnection. Because otherwise, if we don't intercede, the culture is going to teach our sons to disconnect and then start dominating. Sure, sure. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's very um, fascinating, especially bringing in some of the research that's being done for our listeners uh, that may have tuned in just a little uh, later uh, than our start time. I'm uh, having a conversation with uh, keynote speaker and author Mark Green. We're talking about domination culture, white supremacy, and what we need to do to fix things. Um, Mark, you 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 started. I, I, there are two ways that I want to go. I guess I'll start with where you left off and then circle back to mm-hmm. another point. But but you you talked about how we might think about this earlier in their development. And I know that that requires 
people to actually take the time to figure out how to engage in that discourse with a, a five-year-old. You're like, what's the best way to get them to think about it? And, and as I've said to so many different parents that what I've learned, I have four daughters, but I, I learned over time that it's okay for them and for you not to have all the answers. And so oh, that as it relates to this, this, a lot of this is about discovery and saying, um, you know, the very open-ended question you posed about, and so how did that make you feel? That there's no right or wrong. It is just, it just is. Like, this is how you feel. And that's valid on its own. But um, so tell me, what, what are your suggestions about how we get this right? How do we fix it? We've, we've gone down this pathway of creating a certain kind of man in our society, particularly American society. Where do we need to start? Because, you know, we see so many things and our children see so many things on television. I think about, and I think there's nothing in the world wrong with it. Uh, for some of us, we, we, we know the parody in it. Um, when the gentleman who talks about being the most interesting man in the world, right? It's there are all these very dominating uh, aspects of what it means to be a human being. You know, he can wrestle a bear, and and you know all of this, and it's all about a beer commercial, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, he has he has he's wearing he's wearing clothes with his chest hair out. He has women all around, and that like those are the images that children get, um, how, do we, how do we combat that? Um, and where does it start? Is it school also? Are there curricula that we need to put in place? Well, Is I know that, that there are, in Chicago, there's an organization, I forget the name, but they're doing what's called SEL, social emotional learning. Yes. And what yes. they discovered once they start doing social emotional learning, they're integrating it into the, the daily work, uh, you know, the different class schedules, and they make it part of the learning process. And what they discovered uh, was that it raised academic performance 11% when you started helping kids talk in, about their emotions and learning to express about that. But it also increased uh, teacher job satisfaction because the teachers began to have a sense of personal sense of connection with the students. That said, mm -hmm. I know we're, we're running out of time here. I right, want to right. invite people to come to, to – I have a website, remakingmanhood.com. We have a website, thinkplaypartners.com. If you come to thinkplaypartners.com, you'll see a little video we made about the book. But one of the points we make at the beginning of this book is we have to shift the way we view being with our children. And one of the things we like to say is that as we are shaping them, they are shaping us. And it is in that daily conversation, that engagement. And we're not talking about sitting down and having a heavy conversation on Sundays. These are the little conversations we weave in and out as we go through the day, as we're walking to the park. Hey, so um, – so how did you feel about um, about this thing that happened to you? Ah, oh, well, you know, it was this time I some mom. And you say, okay, cool, and you go on. Just mm -hmm. little inquiries, little questions. Sure. When we ask our children questions and we're really interested in the answer, that alone will shift the nature of our relationship with them mm -hmm. and their relationship with their own ideas. It's dramatic mm -hmm. and powerful stuff, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I do know that you know, part of what we do uh, in our curriculum and uh, the program that I direct, we have 
uh, a course, an entire course dedicated to social emotional learning and leadership mm-hmm. uh, so that yeah. principals know how to implement uh, a, a, an environment rich in social emotional uh, valuing uh, social emotional development. Um, yeah. Early, very early on in the broadcast, um, you you made a connection between kind of this domination culture and then the the white supremacy um, uh, mm-hmm. problem. And so, I'd love to hear just. What's the connection? What what is it about it? Well, remember, I asked earlier. I said, "Is this is this kind of a Western European, you know, kind of uh, uh, value?" It's, it's, um, well, it's rooted in in Western in Western cultures. We have the highest level of uh, quality of life, living, whatever you want to call. It. I wouldn't call it quality of life, but standard of living. And what that does is it isolates us. So the, the, the pinnacle of success in America is to live in a gated community in, a, in an empty house with a big screen TV, right? That's, that's life for them. I live in New York City. I'm an anomaly. I like to get out on the streets and walk with people, all different kinds of people and stuff. But most Americans would tell you it's a gated community with a big screen TV because they, mm-hmm. they've been taught that individualism is the, is the pinnacle of success. Individualism mm-hmm. is, a, is a cult in America, right? Yes. But ultimately, when you talk about white nationalism, what you're talking about is the deep levels, epidemic levels of loneliness in America that come out of that individualistic lifestyle, that lack of community. And when white nationalists recruit young men, do you know the first thing they offer them? They offer them belonging. You can mm-hmm. be part of a group that will appreciate you. And how is it possible that we have generations of young men in this country who feel like no one appreciates them? Because no one ever asked them how they felt and, what, and, and helped them see that they were valued in their families and in their schools and wherever else. So this is about dialogue, and it's about undoing the disconnection, which is epidemic in America, especially for young men. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the same that happens in, in many other organizations that are toxic. Um, to mm-hmm. male development, where it's that the belonging. I mean, I think that rings true in a lot of places. So um, bad people will offer belonging if we don't. Bad mm-hmm. bad people will offer belonging if we fail to. Sure, sure. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Mark. I, I mean, this has been great. Great to get to know you and hear about your your uh the work that you're doing just want to encourage you to keep going i i really appreciate it and those of you out there who may have missed um mark has a a book out the little me too book for men and uh please check out some of his writing it's mark green and he's written in uh, a number of online uh, uh areas and salon and Huffington Post, New York Times. You can uh, you can mm-hmm. find me on most social media at Remaking Manhood. Mm, and if you go okay. to Twitter and, or or Instagram or Facebook, you'll find me at Remaking Manhood, and then you, you can get to my articles from there. Awesome, awesome. So uh, thank you, and uh, thank you for listening. Uh, just want to uh, bring your attention. Next week we'll be on hiatus for a week, and we'll be back on Wednesday, May the nineteenth at six p.m. Uh, and where we're going to have a a conversation with the principal of the Thurgood Marshall Academy uh, Law School um, in in Manhattan, um, actually located in Harlem, uh, principal Dr. Dawn Brooks DaCosta. And we have uh, also from the same school, fifth grade teacher, Miss Lucy Middleton, 
Um, they're going to talk about uh, the conversations they've had regarding justice and social issues in our nation um, with the children at the Thurgood Marshall Academy. So it's going to be a great conversation. ask you to join us for that um, Wednesday, May 19th. Our next broadcast um, will be at 6 p.m. Um, that, that evening. Um, and so again, Mark, I'm so uh, thankful for this conversation. Uh, keep up the good work. And uh, until we meet again, go well, stay well.